justification by faith alone. We also learned about Uh, justification by faith alone. We also learn about God's unconditional love. Irrespective of what we do, what we have done, or what we will do. We also study about how God has this inseparable love for us. Even during our bad times, even the times when things are most difficult, that His love cannot be separated from us. And as a result, we are more than conquerors. Also, we learn about so all of these things we've learned in chapters 1 through 11, his indicatives. Now, as we enter chapter 12, we're now learning about these ethical commands, how a Christian is to live in light of these things that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So the term that many of us use here as we enter chapter 12 is become who you already are in Christ. In Christ, you already are perfectly righteous, holy, blameless. And because that is who you are, now become it in the way that you live, the way that you treat others, the way that you make your decisions, spend your money. And the rest of this Roman series is going to focus on these ethical, practical instructions for Christian living. And so now here in Romans chapter 13, we now here study the relationship that we are to have with our governing authorities. Now, this chapter is traditionally seen as a chapter that tells us how we are to view uh, uh, the government, uh, the political authorities above us. And while that is true, I want us to consider uh, the larger content and the context of what Paul's been writing so far. So if you remember, that anchor verse of Romans chapter 12 was, in view of God's mercies, his grace, live this way. And that anchors all these things that we've been studying. So in light of that, if you remember, what is the first thing that Paul commands us to do? He writes in the, uh, chapter 12, serve your church. Serve your church the way that you treat your brothers and sisters inside of your church. Love them. Serve them. So that's the first ethical command that we see. And the second is that the second half of chapter 12, not only to the people right next to us in our church, but the people outside of these walls, specifically your enemies. Overcome evil with good. Love your enemies. Don't take vengeance for yourself. And so now in chapter 13, he's now going into the relationships that we have, not with the people next to us, Not people outside of these walls, those who persecute us, but now to the people above us, the supreme governing authorities. And so what is the context of what Paul is writing here? He's talking about all the peoples around us. The first thing that he says changes when this gospel takes fruit in your life are your relationships are the people next to you, the people who persecute you, and even the people above you. 
And so when we consider this question, has this gospel, do I truly believe justification by faith alone? Christ, he gives me perfect righteousness. And all of these gospel truths, if you sincerely want to see evidence of that, look at your relationships. How do you view your brothers and sisters? Are you loving and serving them? How do you view those who persecute you, your enemies? And now in chapter 13, how do you view the governing authorities above you? A lot of the times, us modern Christians, we think that the evidence of this gospel takes place when when we have this personal time with God and we have this fruitful time of journaling and prayer. And as important as that is, the first evidence that Paul writes is look at your relationships. How do you view the people that God has placed in your life. So starting from chapter 12, the people next to us, the people outside of us, and now in chapter 13, the people above us. So this chapter 13 is not only going to tell us how we are to view the political situation that we might be living in, it's also going to give us principles that we are to abide by. Now, it's not going to tell us uh, who to vote for. It's not going to tell us which political party that we must stand with. But it's going to give us these principles on how we are to view not only just the governing authorities, but anyone who has an authority uh, position in your life. And this is going to help us to see, has this gospel fruit taken place in my life? Paul writes very clearly, right from the beginning of this chapter, verse 1, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is nothing as clear as that. And in continuation, if you look at verse 7, he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. To summarize this, he's saying, to those governing authorities in your life, submit to them, respect them, and honor them. And Paul writes the reasons for doing so throughout the rest of this chapter. So that's how we're going to study this passage this morning. I have three R's for us. Number one, the reasons for submitting honoring and respecting these governing authorities, the reasons. And number two, uh, when to resist the governing authorities, the resist. And finally, the results that happen, the results that follow when we do. So number one, the reasons. Number two, when to resist. And finally, the results that take place. So with that in mind, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, we do pray for your strength and help this morning as we study um, this difficult passage. We confess that many times uh, we enjoy certain parts of your word more than others, but we do pray that all of your scripture, all of your counsel will guide us in truth. Lord, for that is what it means when we submit to you that we listen to your word for us. And even at times when it's uncomfortable, we trust in your sovereign rule over our lives and your voice, and we want to follow you. So give us ears to hear and open hearts to embrace your truth this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
So number one, the reasons why we are to submit, honor, and respect the governing authorities in our lives. And so underneath that, I want us to consider this question. How big is God's sovereignty to you? When you think about how sovereign God is, what are the things that you think of? If you're like me, you think of miracles, perhaps past experiences when you have tangibly felt God's presence in your life. Perhaps he came through with something, a prayer request. And we read things like that in Scripture, splitting of the Red Sea. God is very much sovereign in that. Is God sovereign in the minute details of your lives? How sovereign is God in every single aspect of your lives, even the people that he has placed in your lives? The people you're sitting next to, the people that you are working with, and even the people above you. Do you put God's sovereignty even in those people? That's the question that underlies this command. Submit to your governing authorities. Because what Paul is getting at here is God's sovereignty is a lot bigger than you think. It's not just in the splitting of the Red Sea. He's in your governor even. In fact, he calls our governing authorities God's servants. And this is where I need you to look at Scripture because I'm not saying this from my own mouth. But in verse 4, very clearly he writes, He, your governing authority, he is God's servant, he writes, for your good. He says, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He says, he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In verse 5, he even calls the authorities ministers of God. <laughs> ministers of God. And when we think of God's sovereignty, we cannot simply apply this to, to the leaders who are morally upright, these Christian perfected governing authorities. But the sovereignty of God expands even to those people who are not morally upright, even to those who are not Christian. That's how big God's sovereignty is. And can you expand your notion of that sovereignty? Because what lies underneath is this belief that whoever God has placed in your life, even those above you, ultimately God is the supreme authority. God is the one in authority of all these people. Even Jesus himself recognized this. If you remember, in his final days, right before he was led to the cross, do you remember what he said to Pontius Pilate? Pilate said to Jesus, don't you know I have the authority to kill you and crucify you or to let you go free? And Jesus says, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from heaven. He's saying, you are in your place because God specifically placed you there. And I respect God's authority. What lies underneath this command is the notion of how big is God to you? And does he take place even in your relationships, the ones that you don't like even? My God is sovereign. He's not only sovereign in these great miraculous events. 
but even in the minute details, the minute relationships of our lives. Here, I want to give us two reasons why we are to submit, honor, and respect our superiors. The first is fear. Fear. Paul writes in verse 3 that these rulers, that they are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Therefore, that these governing authorities, they are for your good, for your protection. And those evildoers, they have this fear of these governing authorities, and that ultimately promotes this peace and this well-being of our society. He says he's God's servant for your good. He will punish the wrongdoer, and he will promote the peace. And so when we expand God's sovereignty, we have to consider that God is the one who placed these governing structures in our lives for our good. And whether you're a Christian or you are not, all of us being made in the image of God, God is caring for us in this way. What we call God's common grace. Grace that is given to not only believers, but to unbelievers alike. And as oppressive and as difficult government structures might be, Historically, it has been shown that even an oppressive government is better than no government at all. The classic case is the case of Somalia from 1991 to 2006 when they had no governing structure. And those years recorded the most atrocious events ever recorded to date. Have you ever heard of the term Somalian pirates? They actually exist today. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how can we in this day and age still have pirates going R, roaming around the seas, interrupting ship vessels from Somalia because of this anarchy, because of the way that this tribalism had taken place? Even in those years, about 200,000 people perished because of famine. The CIA World Stat Book reports that one-third of all children under five are underweight. For every 1,000 children, 180 of them, they will never reach the age five. You hear Somalia all the time how they are in constant need of this foreign intervention. The life expectancy in Somalia is 50 years old. And do you know what their greatest export is, the way they make money? It's actually terrorism, selling soldiers. And so that is the classic case that is brought up that having some kind of government is better than none at all. And so when we expand God's notion of sovereignty and common grace for all people, it is God who placed these structures in our lives for order, for protection, and to promote peace. And whether you give him to just do or not, this is something that God is doing for us, and we must recognize that what God is doing in our lives. And you don't have to be Christian to receive this, and that is the goodness of God. For example, this is way before I was a Christian. I was about six or about seven years old, and I was in a rural Korea, this small village. And in that small village, everyone knew each other. And the only thing that kids could look forward to in that village, we had no movie theater, we had nothing. We had a lake, and we had one small arcade. And in that arcade, you know how much it cost to play one game back then? Five cents. Five cents. 
And so that's where all the kids would go. And for me, I was, to be honest, I was addicted. I was there all day. And I remember one day I had no money, so I did what any kid would do. I rummaged throughout the house, trying to find coins and spare change. And finding none, I took it to the next level. I happened to rummage through my mom's purse. And there, surprisingly, I found a $10 bill, 10,001. If you do the math, you know how many times you can play if one game is five cents? And so I was literally there from morning to nighttime, all day. And I told you that in our village, everybody knew each other. My mom's best friend was the arcade owner's wife. So as I was playing, this arcade owner says, your mom wants you home right away. And at that moment, I knew I was caught. And so on the way home, right before I got to the entrance of my door, I was at this intersection. I did what any just boy would do. I took the rest of the money, $9 in some sense, and I threw it in the gutter because I needed to throw away the evidence, right? Because she can't catch me. So I go home, and I'm about to explain the story, saying, I have none of this evidence that you're looking for. I did not do it. But before I even got to give my case, do you know who I happened to see? My father, my mother, and the police officer. Everyone knew each other in town. My mom was good friends with the local police officer. And this police officer grabbed my hand and said, we have to go to jail because we have to respect the law. You stole from your mother. And as much as your mother says, no, I have to take you to jail, I'm sorry. Imagine a six-year-old hearing this as he takes her hand, taking you to the county jail, which is two doors away. <laughs> and before I got to the jail, I was bawling my eyes out, saying I will never steal again, begging for mercy. To this day, I never steal. That was way before I was a Christian. Can you include those instances among God's sovereign grace in your life? The way that he promotes good, that he even uses a local police officer so that wickedness and evil cannot be rampant all over our lands. And so he even displays that, uh, displayed that kind of grace in my life, even way before I even knew who Jesus was. That's how big God's sovereignty is. So when you look at those traffic laws, that stop sign, that parking meter, can you include that amongst God's sovereign grace for the protection of all his people, for our good? I'm sure that I need counseling right now because of the trauma that I've experienced, but nevertheless, to this day, I never stole, nor will I steal. So fear is something that God uses so that he can promote good in our lives. Even to this day, when I'm driving and I see a police car, I get afraid. And many times people tell me, Luke, you have no reason to be afraid if you did nothing wrong. And as much as I like to believe that, for some reason, I don't know if you join with me, if you see a police officer, something inside of you gets nervous. Why is that? That's God's sovereignty. He's using that to promote good. In verse 3, this fear of the authorities is what motivates us to act according to justice. Because verse 5 says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but now, he says, for the sake of conscience. And so what Paul's getting at is the first motivation that you may have 
To act accordingly to justice is one of fear. And as powerful as that is, as powerful as that was in my life, now he gives a stronger motivation. Why? Because fear in itself can only get you so far. Because at the essence of fear, it is self-motivated. See, I didn't want to steal because I didn't want to go to jail again. It is for my good, right? I don't want to disobey the laws of the land because I don't want to pay a fine. It's ultimately benefiting us. But now he gives a far greater motivation. This is the second reason why, and it is one of conscience. He says, for the sake of conscience. And the far better motivation is our conscience knowing that God is the supreme ruler of all nations, all governments, all authorities. So when you submit to any governing authority in your life here on this earth, you are ultimately submitting to God's supreme authority. That's the way that we see subjection. All the commands of submission that we see in Scripture, they have a common theme. And the common theme is the way that you submit to these people is the way that you submit to God. Ephesians 5, that passage when it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. At the end of that sentence, it says, as to the Lord. Meaning, the way you submit to God is seen in the way that you submit to your husbands. And likewise, husbands, love your wives just as Christ laid down his life for the church. Do you see how mutually the way that we serve one another is our submission to Christ ultimately? Children, the way that you honor and you submit to your parents is not because your parents are so great. It's not because they're right all the time. It's because you are submitting to God who placed them in your lives. Likewise, our managers, our teachers, our supervisors, our elected officials, not good in of themselves, but recognizing God underneath and over their authority. It's our Christian conscience. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, he's very much more explicit in this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says, be subject for whose sake? Not for those authorities' sake, not for your own sake, but for the Lord's sake. He says to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or uh, as supreme or to governors, as sent him to punish those who do evil and to praise who do good, for this is the will of God. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And he says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, and here it says, fear God, honor the emperor. Do you see how fearing God and honoring the emperor, they're right next to each other? Because they are within the same category of God's submission. The way you honor your governing authorities is the way you fear God and submit to God's sovereign rule over our lives. So if you want to see how sovereign God is, you don't have to look very far. Look at the laws and the rules and the statutes around us. Look at the people that God placed in your lives who are superior to promote good and peace and order. And it's very difficult to digest this, isn't it? 
But the challenge here for us is the question of, has the gospel of grace taken hold of your life? Do you want to see the evidence of God's mercies? The first place you look are the relationships. The way that you view these people in your life, the way you view even those above you. Have you seen the depths of your sins so much to know that no one is perfect? And have you seen the depths of God's grace to know and his sovereign grace to know that even those people in our lives, God is behind them all. And that's the call here. That's the command. And that's the reason why we are to submit. Because ultimately, we're submitting to God's authority. Second point. Now, when are we to resist the governing authorities? Because we've seen God's intention for these authorities is so that they can be servants for our good, right? Therefore, they place these, uh, these people who are responsible for being a terror to bad conduct, to promote good conduct. And so they do have a God-given responsibility that they must carry out, right? If you remember the movie Lion King, when young Simba, he's getting all excited because he's going to be king. And he tells his father, Mufasa, can't wait to be king because that means you can do whatever you want. Do you remember what Mufasa says? He laughs and he says, oh, there's more to being a king than that. There's more to being a king because you are in God's responsibility to take care of the people, to promote good, justice, and order. But all the while, though, that is what God intends in these structures. You and I know that there throughout history have been people who took advantage of their roles of authority. People who took advantage of those who are poor and weak. The ones who exercise their power for bad. And while God did not force these men to be evil, God did institute these structures. Uh, these structures. And it is the people themselves that are acting in that way. These men, these women in these places of authorities. We've seen throughout history how they abused their places of authority to practice evil, where their position was meant for the good of the people under them. And even throughout history, this very chapter has been used to promote wickedness and evil. For example, in Germany, sadly, by a Protestant theologian, by the name of Otto Dibelius. He cites this passage to promote fellow Germans to support Hitler and the Nazi regime. During the American Revolution, loyalists, as they saw their fellow brothers and sisters being oppressed by the English government, they refused to fight, they refused to support their fellow brothers because of their obedience to the King of England. And they used Romans 13 to justify their actions. Even in the Civil War, the Confederate States, they used Romans chapter 13. Even in some of the newspapers, one of them saying that, I wish a divine vengeance upon the northern states because they refused to obey God's word here in Romans 13. 1985, it was the passage used by the South African pre uh, president to promote apartheid. And even recently, just two months ago, our Secretary of uh, United States Attorney General used this chapter to promote a policy to separate immigrant children from their parents. We've seen time and time again in history how people, wicked men, might even use this passage to promote not good, but evil. 
So the question now lies is, how are we to make sense of this? When are we to resist? When are we to subject? And here, we have some implications. And the first thing we have to consider is, there is a distinction that needs to be made between submitting and unqualified obedience. Submission and unqualified obedience. And Paul is calling for submission, not unqualified obedience. We are not to obey every single command that our superiors give us, but we are to be subject to them. One of submission, and it's one that says, you know, I acknowledge your authority in my life, in these categories, in this aspect of my life, and in this aspect of my life. So our posture towards them is one of honor and respect, not because of who they are, but because of the role that they have. And yes, at times this does include obedience in their spheres of authority, but it's not unqualified, unconditional obedience. Let me delineate what this means. Growing up, I had an older sister. She is about seven years older than me. And because she's seven years older than me, we never, need, uh, we never needed babysitters in our house. So every time my parents left the house, my sister would be my babysitter. And now what's very important is that when my parents are giving instructions to my sister, it's very important that I eavesdrop what they say to her because I need to know what kind of authority they give my sister. And usually it's something like make sure he finishes his homework, make sure he eats his dinner before he eats dessert, and make sure he only watches an hour of Looney Tunes. And so I take that in, and it's very important that I do, because throughout the night, when my sister give these commands in those fears of authority, I respect it, I honor her, and I obey. But there was one time when she tried to be smart and said, you have to do the dishes, which is, I know, her chores. And that's why it's very important that I eavesdrop on the staircase what my parents tell her. I know that is not a sphere of authority that the superior authority had given her. And for her to command me to do something that is not in that sphere, I have to peacefully resist. As much as I would like to say, I did not peacefully resist, but that is what we are called to do. Do you see the distinction? I can submit to my sister, but I will not unconditionally obey every command. Why is that? Because I'm ultimately recognizing the supreme authority of mom and dad. When their commands contradict and go against the authority of the superior authority, that is when we are called to resist. That's what subjection means. You are recognizing the hierarchical structures that God has placed in your life. Parent, teacher, and above that, and above that, and ultimately God. That is what Paul is painting a picture here. And not only here, but even all throughout Scripture, we see examples and when Christians and believers are to resist. And for the rest of this point, I'm going to give three examples, and you guys can refer to them on your own. The first is when your superior or authority commands you to disobey God's explicit commands. When God gives you very clearly a command and the governing authorities tells you to disobey, the example that we use in Acts chapter 5, 
When all the apostles, they're given very clearly by God, he says, go, stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life, meaning proclaim the gospel. And what happens? As they do, the Jewish council and the authorities, they hear this, they imprison them, saying, we strictly charge you to not teach and preach in the name of Jesus, but yet you have continued to do so. And do you remember what Peter and the apostles, their famous answer was? We must obey God rather than men. Why? Because they refuse to go against the explicit command of God. That's the first example. The second example, we are to resist when we're commanded to worship idols or other gods. Idols or other gods. And this example we see from the story of Daniel in the book of Daniel. Because then the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he commands all of his subjects to worship this idol, this statue of himself. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow to any idol, what do they do? They say, we will worship only our God and our king. They're thrown in the fiery furnace, remember? And do you remember their famous line? We will not worship you, O king. Let it be known to you, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And that powerful line, and even if he doesn't, we still will worship our God. And remember what happens after that? Not only are they protected, but the king of Babylon sees this miracle and they say, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the edict now is anyone who goes against their God, they should be put to death. Do you see how God calls for us to resist when we're called to obey and worship another idol or God? And the third example we see we are to resist is when we are to break God's moral laws. In those times, we are to resist. And we see this in, in Exodus chapter 1. And in Exodus chapter 1, the Pharaoh of Egypt, he sees the people of Israel getting stronger and more populous. And so out of fear, he commands all the firstborn Hebrew children to be killed, the sons. And if you remember, the Hebrew midwives, they refuse to do so. And instead, they protect these firstborn children. And when the Pharaoh found out, he called for the midwives saying, why have you disobeyed me? And do you remember their answer? They said, the Hebrew women... They're more vigorous. They're stronger than Egyptian women. By the time we get there, they've already given birth. And what does God do in light of that? He blesses them with families of their own, families that these midwives would have never have gotten because they refused to obey Pharaoh's orders when it went against God's moral law. God calls us to protect the sanctity of life, to protect the weak. And so they did so, and God honored that. You see, these examples show that we are called to live in subjection and submission to these structures of authority, not unqualified, unconditional obedience. And so we have these principles that help us abide by this law, this command that Paul gives us. Finally, let's end with the results that take place when we follow these things. So far, we've seen the reason for submitting and honoring and respecting our governing authorities. And secondly, we saw when to resist them. And finally, the results that come about when we do this. Now, one would wonder, 
knowing very well about all the atrocities that we hear by people in these places of authorities, we may wonder, you know, how can Paul give such a command? Is he naive to think that everything's going to go well if they do this? He's writing, if you remember, to the Roman government. He's not writing to these Christian kings who are morally upright. He was writing during the time of Emperor Nero. And even in light of that, he's calling these Roman Christians, honor your emperor, respect them, submit to them. And if anyone can say about how much they were oppressed by the government, it's Paul. You remember throughout his ministry, he was beaten. He was imprisoned on many occasions, always running from his life. One time, he was let down out of the wall because the governor wanted to kill him. Eventually, Rome is the final city that Paul visits because it is there where he is beheaded by that very government. So if anyone, Paul knows about how hard it is to submit to your governing authorities. It was the time of Nero. And the story goes that this emperor Nero, as a fool, he starts a fire in Rome that burns half the city down to the ground. And because he didn't want to take the blame, he blames the Christians And that marks the most atrocious acts of persecution that Christians have ever experienced. During that time, you know what Roman Christians were accused of? They were accused of being cannibals because supposedly they have a service where they gather in the middle of the night and they eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. They're accused of being cannibals. They're accused of having incestuous relationship with their family members. Why? Because they call everyone their brothers and sisters. And so they're having all of these false accusations, and yet still Paul says, submit to your authorities. And if 2,000 years ago is too far from you, just look at the brothers and sisters we have in Myanmar, Sierra Leone, Egypt, North Korea. Because as much as you and I, we love Romans 8. You know what those brothers and sisters love? Romans 13. God is the supreme authority. God is behind them. God cares for us. And so we must expand our notion of how God acts. And so Paul very much knows how difficult it will be to do this, to live this out. But the reason why we are to do this is so that we can shine. Shine like stars in the universe. Because those Roman Christians... When they submitted, they stood out. They stood out. Paul says from verse 11, you know the hour has come to wake up from sleep. He's saying that we are living in a time of darkness. Now is the time to put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the time is near. We are living in these end times, so we must make it our priority to, example, to exemplify ourselves as citizens of heaven here on earth. Because what happens when we live as citizens of heaven here on earth, as, shine, as stars, we shine against the backdrop of an evil, twisted generation, as Philippians 2 says. Because these Roman Christians, as they were subject to their authorities, there was something different about them. You know, back then, Roman citizens, you had to be associated with a particular guild. Meaning, if you made metal, 
you made the metal workers guild. If you baked bread, all the bread makers were together. And together they worshiped a particular god or goddess. I guess there was a god of bread or a god of metal. But the Christians, they refused to do that. Why? Because they would not worship any other god or goddess. And as a result, do you know what happened financially? They experienced the most utmost persecution economically for that. During that time, it was, it was legitimate to have uh, relationships outside of your marriage, but they refused to do that because they honored the marriage bed between man and wife, and they stood out, and they were ostracized. When they were led to their death, they weren't complaining. They weren't resisting, but like the model of Christ, they took up their cross, and those things stood out for these Roman Christians. Even in their poor situation, they were generous with their money to the poor and to those outside of their race, even ethnically. When they were persecuted, they took Romans chapter 12, verse 19, something that Pastor Dan told us last week, never avenge for yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now consider these two things. Number one, they didn't leave Rome. They didn't quit. They didn't say, the emperor's not my emperor, and they didn't say, you know, I quit. Forget this. And they were just insular, saying, I'll just let the world go on as ourselves, and we'll just make our Christian community and make sure that we're doing our own thing. Why? Because they modeled Christ. Because Christ could have done the very same thing in heaven, saying, you know what? I'm going to be insular. I'm going to let them do their own thing, and I'm going to stay here in heaven. But what does he do? He comes in a manger, and the very moment that he is born, King Herod is after his life, likewise experiencing the persecution that you and I might face in the government. And the other thing is, they didn't take arms. They didn't fight back. They didn't try to overthrow the government. And how are they able to do that? Because they see Christ. When Christ, when he was leading up to his death, he didn't call his disciples and fathers to overthrow the government, but by example, he saw, he showed us that the way to life is through death, by the way that we take up our cross, and that is the way that we are to have life. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Remember, the, Rome, uh, the Jewish uh, disciples, the Jesus disciples, they're trying to get Jesus to overthrow the government. And as he enters Jerusalem, he doesn't enter on a war horse, he enters on a donkey. How does he inaugurate his kingdom? Not by crushing his enemies, but by himself being crushed. And so with Jesus as the model, these Roman Christians, they put on the armor of light, the armor of Christ, as they went to work on Monday morning. Perhaps in light of oppression, the ridicule from their peers and their co-workers and their superiors. They put on Jesus Christ, even when they struggled financially, knowing that they can still give generously to the poor, knowing that, that their riches are not here on earth, but in heaven. They know that even if they receive the death sentence, that that's the way to everlasting life. Do you see that the way they acted was categorically different from the way that the people around them acted? And that was how that they were going to shine like stars against the backdrop, against these evil, twisted authorities that God might have placed in your life. Do you see God's sovereignty in that? That's how Jesus lived. That's how Jesus died. He had no money to his name. Remember, he didn't even have a denarius. He said, someone give me a coin. I need to make an illustration. <laughs> he had no place for his head. He spent his time with the poor. 
he respected the authority above him, rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when Jesus faced the persecution of the governing authorities, he underwent that death trial with Pontius Pilate and with the Jews calling for his death. He did not call upon the legion of angels to come down to resist forcefully. Why? Because that's what marks Jesus' kingdom. It's the poor that is blessed. In Jesus' kingdom, death is conquered, and the gateway to that life is through death. In Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't matter how successful you turn out to be or how successful your children turn out to be. All that matters is that you are faithful in sharing the gospel to those around you. In Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't matter how fast you move up that corporate ladder because you know that your life and your value is based on the merit of Christ. Do you see how categorically different God's kingdom is? So are you going to put on Jesus Christ as you go to work tomorrow so that you can shine against the backdrop of darkness? So will you submit, respect, and honor those people around you, those people above you, praying for them even, and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, when you consciously make that decision to put on Christ, the way that we act is different. You know, when a, when a woman wears a wedding gown, as she sees herself in that wedding gown, her actions change. When a guy puts on a LeBron James jersey, the way he dribbles the ball changes. Do you see how important it is for us, you and I, brothers and sisters, to put on Christ daily as we enter these worlds so that we can shine Christ? I just want to end with just one anecdote that convicted me and encouraged me as I was recalling this passage. You know, during the few years that I worked in the corporate world after college, uh, one of the first things that I found out was just how much complaining, how much grumbling uh, there was in the corporate world. Just every day, people complaining about their jobs, about their superiors. And after a while, it gets to you. It starts to take an effect on you. And sooner or later, you start to join them. And all my Christian brothers and sisters, they knew how hard it was. I would just tell them but just how hard work was. Every Sunday night, I would Google chat all my friends. I don't want to go to work tomorrow. And I would complain so much to them. So much that my brothers and my sisters, they said, you know what, you need to change because you're not being a good witness. So eventually I took Philippians chapter two and I hung it up on the wall of my cubicle. Philippians chapter two where it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And it was that very same time that I was being convicted that you and I we were supposed to proclaim the gospel to our coworkers, to our bosses and our managers. So I didn't know how to reconcile the two. Work was so hard, but at the same time, we're called to share the gospel to those around them. I was looking for these concrete opportunities to share the gospel with them, and I never had one opportunity. But after a couple years of working, as the Lord called me to go overseas, I put in my resignation letter, and at the last final week, my superior, my, the vice president of operations, she said, Luke, can I treat you to a dinner? just want to thank you for all the work that you've done. So during that final week, she takes me out to a restaurant, and we do a little bit of talking about work. And that whole time, I'm thinking, she's going to praise me for all the good work that I've done. So I was getting ready to receive all this praise. And she says, Luke, I just have one question. You know the environment that our workplace is like. And she just goes, how come you never complained? And that's all she wanted to know. And I had two feelings. Number one, I was very guilty. Because I was like, you don't know how much I complain. 
And number two, I was convicted with this, and I want us to end with this. The way that we follow God's commands in these ways are going to be the very means through which we're going to share this gospel. If we live faithfully, putting on the armor of Christ, even on that Monday morning, even as you wake up in the morning, the way that you serve your kids, the way that you teach your kids, the way you go to work, the way you drive, all of those things matter. And God is faithful and God is sovereign enough to use that for the proclamation of his gospel. I shared the gospel with her. I don't know if it's a success story. I don't know where she is in her faith. But that goes to show, live out as God's people, as heavenly kingdom of citizens, and that he will give us opportunity to proclaim this gospel to those around us, not to those in our walls, but to those outside, even to those above us. And that is God's will for our lives. Let's pray.